Hey there, listeners. Thanks for stopping by to the podcast today. Please, before you're done listening to this episode, leave us a review. If you're on Spotify, you can review now, and you can also review on Apple Podcasts. But if there's any platforms that I'm forgetting about and you can leave us a review, please do so. If you're happening to watch us on YouTube, and if you don't know, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube now, uh, please like and subscribe to the channel and share the episode as well. So thanks for stopping by, everybody, and enjoy the episode. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream we one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Max Willett, and today we got another great guest on. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Hi, I'm Ian Brown, Red Sox beat writer for uh, MLB.com. Very cool. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day to talk to me. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be awesome. The listeners of the show might know that I'm a huge baseball fan. Greatest sport on the face of the planet. Um, So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, so basically just like we start out with every podcast, uh, let's, uh, learn a little bit about you. Let's hear your life story and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. I mean, I grew up and just, uh, loved baseball and, uh, found out pretty quick. I wasn't going to be good enough to play it for a living. Uh, and then the one thing I really excelled at in school was, um, writing. So I thought, uh, it'd be cool if I could just put, um, uh, the two things together and then, um, I went to uh, I graduated high school. I went to Northeastern and I majored in journalism. And uh, there I got to do uh, I got to do what's called co-ops where you're working in your field um, for you for quarters at a time. We had a quarter system at Northeastern and I got the uh, by the end of my sophomore year, I got the opportunity to work at the Boston Globe. Um, and I wound up there for the rest of the time I was in college. So uh, Northeastern was a five-year school. So I was there for three and a half years um, working there on my co-op program. And even when I was in school, working there on a part-time basis, just doing reporting and uh, doing work uh, around the desk. And it was just uh, more just like networking with the people who were there, seeing how a major sports section worked. Uh, It was just kind of um, an invaluable opportunity. So that was really the first a uh, big thing that happened in my for my career was just being able to work at the Globe um, as a kid uh, um, for for three and a half years. Very cool. So, uh, let's talk about like sort of your high school and college career. Like, when did you realize that you wanted to like get into journalism? Was there was after you know I know you had mentioned that you know you didn't think you could play at a higher level, but was there any other aha moment that made you realize this is actually really cool? Yeah, it was just I used to read the the Globe Sports page every day, and then uh, I got to a point where, like, in uh, like around eleventh grade, I started going to the game. When I was at the games, I would look up into the press box, and I'd be like, "Man, that would be cool to be up there. That'd be a cool way to sort of watch the games and write about the games." So I would say, uh, yeah, sixteen, seventeen, somewhere around there was when I really started to get um, focused on it and thought, like, you know, this is what I want to do. Very cool. So let's talk about, so as you were up and coming, you know, what did you find the most difficult 
uh, part of, you know, trying to build yourself up as a writer? Um, really the writing out was always what came the easiest to me. Um, mm -hmm. what was the hardest was like when I first started talking to, um, like pro athletes and stuff, it's just like getting the confidence to sort of talk to them in a way that, um, they can relate to, or they can give you good answers because like, I find out like, you know, if you're, if you're like a little nervous, they're going to sort of feed off that. And if you're not ready for the interview, they're going to feed off that. So just finding a way really to kind of um, just really um, be proficient at, at talking to players. That was my biggest challenge um, at a young age. Um, like I said, I think I was always good, pretty good at the writing, but just uh, just kind of building relationships. I was a little shy growing up. So you got to come out of that a little bit and just be mm -hmm. um, a little more um, extroverted and just uh, find a way to relate to people because the um, sports journalism business, really a lot of it, at least when I was coming up, it's all a lot about the kind of relationships you, uh, you know, you can build along the way. Great. Yeah. And who was like the first pro athlete that you met and had to ask questions to that you remember that, you know, you're like, holy crap, like this is so-and-so. Yeah. Um, very early, um, I was working for a place called um, Sportsline USA. It was a website. We were based down in South Florida. It later became what a lot of people know as um, CBS Sportsline. But the Lakers were playing um, in Miami, and that was when Magic Johnson was on his uh, comeback tour with the Lakers in in '96. And just getting a chance to talk to him, I mean, I idolized that whole um, Larry Bird Magic Johnson rivalry when I was a kid, and um, just getting a chance to talk to to magic and he was just uh, such a nice guy and he had actually won that game um i still remember he won it with a skyhook to beat his old coach uh, pat riley that was the first mm -hmm. time they ever, um they had ever gone up against each other and then also uh, a few months after that i i, I had a one-on-one -on -one interview with cal ripkin um which was you know just amazing for a person at my age uh, i think i was 20 25 at the time and just talking to, to talking to Cal Ripken, he was still in the middle of the streak, and uh, he actually gave me a nugget uh, at the time about how his back was acting up. And there was one time he thought about ending the streak, and it was kind of news at the time. And just uh, things like that at a very young age is kind of surreal when you when when you're talking to guys like that. But that was good, you know. I just kind of got thrown into the deep end uh, at a young age uh, talking to uh, major sports figures. So that really. That really helped me and gave me a lot of confidence. Cool. And just so people know, uh, the streak Cal Ripken had, uh, it was the amount of uh, the games he played in in a row, correct? Yeah, he played, uh, God, it was what, uh, 2,600, I think it was 2,652 games he wound up playing. And, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig's record, which had stood forever, that nobody ever thought he was going to break that. That was 2,130 games in a row. So just yeah. Uh, uh, Cal Ripken to be able to do that. Uh, he was sort of, uh, you know, larger than life. Now, now you don't see guys play more than uh, 10, 15 games in a row. Uh, it seems like. Yeah. So, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like you go to see a Red Sox game and then Raphael Devers is sitting and you're like, well, that's the whole reason why I came. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah so exactly. kind of... I feel bad for some of these people paying these money for these tickets and uh, you don't see somebody, but that's, you know, that's one of the reasons Cal Ripken always wanted to be uh, in there for his team. Absolutely. So you didn't always just write, about baseball yeah no when i was at um when i got out of the globe at the globe i wrote about all kind of high school sports mainly and every sport mm -hmm. i did a lot of hockey basketball baseball uh football 
So I got really got familiar with all the sports. Um, and then when uh, when Sportsline hired me, um, they were just kind of a startup um, internet site at the time. They hired me a few months after I graduated from high school in '96, and they were covering they were covering all sports. So um, I, you know, I would go when I was living in Miami for those two years, or South Florida, I would go to. Uh, Heat games and Florida Panther games and Miami Dolphins games, and we were sort of a national. Um, we were a national website, so I'd write um, kind of like about the other team a lot of times if they were a bigger story, you know, whatever the biggest story was, I would try to write about. But yeah, I really got familiar with all sports, and then uh, a big break in my career came in 1998 when my boss at the time, uh, Mike Kahn, um, he wanted to move all at the time. All of our writers were centralized in Florida. And that didn't seem to make a lot of sense since we were a national outlet. So uh, his idea was to move us around the country. And he knew I was from the Northeast. So he moved me to New York, uh, where I became you know, the one man uh, New York City bureau chief. And I, you know, I got to cover the Yankees, the Mets, the Giants and the Jets um, and all, all, basically all the, you know, the hockey team, the Devils, the Islanders, the Rangers um the Knicks and just covered a lot of cool stuff in New York and that was a great sports city to kind of be covering because there was always something going on you know it's just an exciting place to live and to cover sports um so I got to do that covering all different sports in New York for um three full years so that that was amazing right there what would you say was the you know the most difficult sport to consistently come up with great content with and and interesting content or were they all just you know, there's a, there's a clean slate and a lot of information to write about. Yeah. I had a hard time with hockey because um, I just didn't, I was never a big hockey fan, but at the time my boss wanted me to do a lot of hockey because um, I was kind of the low man on the totem pole and we had, you know, it seemed like nobody down there liked hockey very much. Yeah. So I kind of became the hockey guy for a while. So that was a challenge um, because it didn't come as naturally for me, but um, I think I did a pretty good job. Um, and I just, um, I got in the rhythm with it and the play, the one thing about hockey players, they're all great to talk, you know, just about all of them are great to talk to. They're very nice mm-hmm. guys. Um, so just getting a chance to do that, but I did get this after covering hockey. I think I covered hockey mainly. I was our main hockey guy for, um, two seasons. Um, and after that I got moved to, to baseball, which was, which was great. Cause that was such a comfort zone for me. Cause I had been um, watching baseball and following baseball since I was, um, eight years old. But uh, yeah, so I would say hockey was was the most challenging. And uh, Max, would... you, just hold up, you just hold on one second. I just want to plug yep. in my no problem. Like All right. So, which sport did you feel was um you know the most difficult to talk to the players? Most difficult to talk to the players. Um, that's a great question. I would probably say uh, baseball. Just I yeah. don't know. It's hard to get. It's hard to learn how to speak the language of these guys. They're not always the, the nicest guys. Um, you kind of just have to know how they tick, and if you don't ask them a question the right way, they can be real particular about that. Uh, but now it's the one I'm the most comfortable with. So yeah, it's funny how um, it's funny how it's uh, evolved over time. But um, Have- yeah, baseball at first was hard. Have you ever accidentally upset somebody? Yes, I have a good question. story. Hold on All one right. second. One more. I'm just going to get my water. Yep. Okay, yeah. So my second year covering the Red Sox was 2003. Um, and I'm in the manager's office in Toronto with, with Grady Little. 
um, who was the Red Sox manager at the time and all the beat writers. And all of a sudden I start hearing uh, Pedro in the background. It's kind of cursing about this and cursing about that and uh, damn media or something like that. And I didn't know, I had no idea what he was upset about. So um, a few minutes after the interview with Grady was over, um, the Red Sox PR guy at the time, Glenn Gefter came up to me and said, hey, just want to let you know, Pedro's upset about something you wrote in your article. And at the time, the Red Sox, uh, Pedro had a had an option year for 2000, the 2004 season that the team had not picked up yet. Um, and it became this big controversy, and he really wanted the team to either pick, pick up the option to give him some security for the following year or to give him um, a contract extension. So they wound up picking up the option. Um, and this was like in April of 2003, they picked up the option for the 2004 season. And I just wrote like an innocuous comment in my article, like, you know, Pedro was happy to get the option, um, but he won't be completely content until he re-signs um, a long-term extension with the Red Sox. So what I was trying to do is just kind of say how much he wanted to stay in Boston. But I guess some people on the talk shows and some of his friends, um, they portrayed the article as trying to say he was being ungrateful for the the contract option being picked up and, and still complaining that he didn't have a, um, an extension beyond that. So that's what he was mad about. Um, I think it was not so much reading the article himself, but it was uh, other people relaying it to him, what people were saying. So it was actually really good because I got a chance to talk to him at the time. Um, I went right up to his locker and he really didn't know me that well yet because it was only my second year um, covering the Sox. And he knew a lot of the other writers who had been there uh, for his whole career in Boston. And um, I just said, Pedro, this is what I was saying. You know, I was saying that this is this is how much you want to stay in Boston. Is that, yeah, you're happy you got the option, but you want to be here for the rest of your career. So I thought that was like a complimentary thing, showing your loyalty to Boston. And after he talked about it, he really respected me. And he's like, okay, I understand. I understand. I'm sorry I got mad. And after that, he um, became great to me. And we were always like, to this day, like every time he sees me, uh, we have a really good relationship. So it actually helped that we had that little conflict in the beginning because it got us, gave us a chance to kind of talk um, heart to heart and to to get to know each other a little bit. That's uh, one of my favorite stories as an example of kind of how um, relationships can, can develop. Very cool. Did, have you ever uh, ran into Bill Belichick at anything? Have you ever have you ever had to cover football or the Patriots? Well, it's funny. I was at the the um I was living in New York at the time, so I was at the famous um, press conference where Belichick was supposed to become the head coach of the the Jets when Parcells retired. Um, so I got to cover that whole thing and just what you know. If you remember, Belichick came in with like a paper napkin and like resigned as HC of the NYJ. Um, it was kind of no, a, yeah, it was it kind of a. Let's hear that whole story because I, I I don't know a lot about football or that history. Yeah, so yeah. Let's, so, let's hear the whole story. So, you know, Parcells and Belichick had been uh, – they had been coaching together for years and Parcells was always like the head coach and Belichick was always his top um, defensive assistant. Um, they had great success together at three places, the Giants, the Patriots, um, and the Jets. But finally, um, Parcells was ready to step down as coach, but he, there was something in the contract that when he retired, it would auto, uh, there would be a clause that automatically triggered that would make Belichick the new coach of the Jets. But what happened was the Patriots fired their coach at the time, Pete Carroll, and Bob Kraft really wanted to hire Bill, Bill Belichick because he had uh, 
you know, he had known him from when he was the Patriots assistant coach in 96, but Parcells at that time, like hated the Patriots because he had a terrible parting out with the, he had a terrible parting of ways with the Patriots. And he basically um, resigned right after he got them to the Super Bowl um, to go to the Jets and it became this big court battle and everything. So, um, so everyone thought Belichick was coming in to be anointed as um, the new coach of the Jets. And he walks in and um, to the shock group of people to say he has just resigned as uh, head coach of the Jets. And be- right before he came into the press conference, he actually wrote on a, it was like on a paper napkin or, you know, just like to the owner, he's like, I'm, I'm resigning as um, HC of the NYJ and <laughs> coach of the New York Jets uh, effective immediately. So that was just like everybody there was shocked, was shocked. And Belichick just went on this big sort of ramble about how um, about how he just needed to get out of Parcells' shadow and how he just, you know, he had uh, misgivings about the Jets because they were in the they were in the middle of shifting ownership. And um that and I just remember I wrote a column at the time just saying, look, I think Belichick just needs to um, get out of Parcells' shadow because if he had stayed as head coach of the Jets, Parcells was still going to be like his boss. And so I actually wrote like a kind of a complimentary thing like saying, you know, let's see what this guy can do away from Parcells. So it turned out to be a little um, prophetic, but that was crazy. And then the only time I had really ever met Belichick was um, prior to a Red Sox-Yankees game in 2002. Uh, he was out at batting practice with his friend, um, his public, his top um, aide, his name is um, Barish Najarian. And um, Barish and I had known each other through, um, Barish had formerly been a PR guy with the Jets. So I knew him then. And so Barish introduced me to Belichick. And uh, it was right after the Patriots had won their first Super Bowl against the Rams. It was in 2000, uh, February of 2002. But Belichick was super nice to me. Um, when I met him, I think because he knew he knew I knew Bears and I wasn't like a Patriots writer, so I wasn't any kind of threat to him. But super gracious, we had a nice you know talk for a couple minutes, and uh, so it was kind of cool uh, meeting him. But I've never really gotten to cover him um, other than that one crazy press conference. Um, yeah. I've never really gotten to cover him on a sort of uh, professional basis. Did you? And I understand if you can't really say, but did you ever run in or did you ever meet a professional you know athlete who? was just a straight up jerk for a lack of a better term, you know, or I don't know if you can say yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I had a couple guys I just really didn't get along with. Um, and it wasn't unique to their situation with Boston at the time because they didn't get along with a lot of the people. Uh, the first one is John Lackey, um, who just, um, he took a lot of criticism when he got to New- to Boston because mm. he signed the big contract and he was kind of like, um mediocre's first season and then um, he pitched through a bad injury in 2011 and had like a six era so he was just taking a beating when he probably shouldn't have pitched that year he probably should have shut it down and had tommy john surgery so it just seemed like every time i asked him a question he would just sort of snap at me you know he just didn't understand um he didn't understand the way the the boston media really worked and he was used to being in with the angels where people were patting him on the back whether he pitched well or he didn't pitch well so he was just very snippy with me. And there was a, a two or three post games that was just really uncomfortable with him. And um, the other one was David Price. Um, you know, I don't, he, it was just like with Lackey. He just didn't understand how the media worked. And he was hypersensitive to everything everybody said. And I remember a night in New York, um, my friend um, Evan Drellick, who covered the Red Sox at the time, um, 
he got into a really bad run in with Price in the clubhouse and the word to the point where they were like yelling and screaming at each other. So when things had cooled down, I actually tried to play like peacemaker a little bit and went up to Price was just sitting at his locker by himself. And I was like, Hey, I just want to see like if everything's okay. And he started like yelling at me. He was like, uh, get the hell away from my locker. Are you guys, you know, trying to start things with me? He's like, get, and he started swearing at me. Um, <laughs> And I didn't know what the hell was going on. Like I had always had like pleasant interactions with him. So, you know, I was just trying to, um, I was just trying to see what was going on and see if there's anything I could do to help uh, mediate the situation or anything. Yeah. And, uh, so he went, so he went off on me and then there was one other time I asked him a very, like uh, a couple years later, a very innocent, innocuous question. He again was just really uh, nasty to me um so yeah i just didn't enjoy covering those two guys um uh, most of these guys i've gotten along with extremely well over the years i've had you know i've been fortunate man my, my relationship with david ortiz is just tremendous like he we just have a really great relationship um we always have um same thing with pedro and you know xander bogarts and a lot of these guys i have a really good rapport with but um so um I think you just try to build as much trust as you can with these guys. And I've been able to do that with most, with most of these guys, but for some reason, um, David Price and uh, John Lackey, it was hard to to build any trust with them. So you just kind of move on and say, okay, I guess I won't be doing many one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one interviews with this guy, but it was, yeah. fine. you know, I've, like I said, I've had a pretty good run in my dealings with players. I always remember David Price being a little bit of a diva. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I remember uh, when he had that, that run in with Dennis Eckersley yeah, or, yeah. or something along those lines. Uh, do you think you could explain that situation a little bit better than I can? Cause I'm not exactly sure what. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really a bizarre situation. What happened was um, the, the Red Sox were playing that night. It was like a getaway night where they were taking a flight to uh, Toronto after the game and they just um they so one of the producers or something flat eduardo rodriguez was on our minor league rehab assignment at the time coming back from an injury this was also in 2017 and they just kind of flashed his pitching line on the screen and it was something like um you know three and a third inning seven hits three runs four walks and uh eckersley just said one word he said yuck he said yuck when he saw it when the pitching line of erod flashes across the screen so it was yeah. pretty innocuous, especially to anyone who say who knows Zach. He'll just say whatever's on his mind. He's not one to to hold back. But um, later that that night, when Eck got on the the team plane, um, the the players were all sitting on the plane waiting for him, and he walked up, and uh, you know, I think it was Price said something like, "Oh, here comes the, the the greatest pitcher that ever lived. He never made a mistake in his career." And it was just like really sarcastic, and then like. Other players started clapping, and Price just really like um, dressed Eckersley down, and Eckersley was just really uh, kind of just embarrassed and uh, disgusted by the whole thing, and he didn't really know what to do. So um, I don't, you know, I don't think he really like went back and forth with him. I think he just kind of moved to the back of the plane, but that really left a sour taste in um, in Dennis Eckersley's mouth, um, and a lot that really kind of turned fans against David Price because Eckersley is kind of a beloved guy um, mm. in Boston. And um, yeah, that, and I think Eckersley really didn't like to travel with the team after that. He didn't really want to go on team flights. He didn't want to travel a lot um, in general. And he was just such a great announcer, but he was candid and would say what was, what was on his mind. And uh, mm -hmm. what David didn't understand was that uh, 
his whole thing was that oh the game comes easy to Dennis Eckersley because he's a Hall of Famer, but what he didn't understand is that Dennis Eckersley went through a lot of hard times in his career, uh, where he kind of washed out as a starting pitcher, and then you know it became very public that he had a drinking problem. So he had to get that under control. And then even when he was a reliever, he's one of the best relievers of all time that helped him get to the Hall of Fame. But he gave up, you know, the most famous home run in baseball history. Kirk probably. Gibson. Yeah, Kirk Gibson in the yep. 1988 World Series. So for, for David Price to assert that Dennis Eckersley never went through struggles, and that's why he's not more um, sympathetic to these players, uh, that was just like, that made no sense at all. So that was kind of the background on why that um, became such a big story. Um, you know, David Price finally in 2018 sort of won, you know, he won the fans back a little bit by just coming up huge um, in the playoffs that year. That was really the first time mm-hmm. he could call in the playoffs. But um, yeah, back to the next season, 2019, his last year in Boston, it was back to the same old prickly stuff where he'd get set off by something. And it was just never really, you know, he just never liked pitching in Boston and the, Boston fans and media just never really were able to relate to him um, that well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I've only heard like one person say that they dislike Dennis Eckersley from a commentator standpoint. Yeah. And I, I never understood why. So if, if that person is listening to this podcast right now, you know <laughs> who you are. Uh, he's like, I just can't stand the high cheese and, all oh, that. Yeah. I'm like, it's like because you never really played baseball and you don't understand the language. <laughs> yeah, and that's the way I, I love. I love listening to Eck. I'm gonna miss. Uh, I'm gonna miss listening to that guy. I know he's uh, yeah you know, tired. He's leaving to, to go to California. Very sad because I grew up. I mean, there was Donner Sillo. Um, yeah, Donner Sillo or no. Um. Oh my gosh. Why am I forgetting his name? Is it Donner Sillo? Yeah, Donner Sillo. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. And Jerry Remy were like the you know when they were together i always loved their their interactions with each other uh and uh they just were they're hilarious and jerry remy and him just they just hit it off it seemed like every time i watched a baseball game they would make it far more entertaining than just the baseball alone which i could just sit there and watch you know right. just the baseball uh and it was it, it i think i have never been like sad about you know like a celebrity passing like i've never i've never been like uh you know that that really sucks you know, yeah, yeah. when Jerry Remy passed, I was like, that really sucks, you know, because yeah. I listened to him for my whole childhood, you know, and I I hadn't met him, but we were in Baltimore once and we were doing a tour of Camden Yards and he like walked past me and I was like, that's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, very sad when Jerry died for sure. Yeah, he was uh, someone I was fortunate enough to kind of be friends with uh, for a long time, but yeah, just to kind of lose him. That was, that was a tough moment mm-hmm. uh, for all of us, for sure. Especially all the crap that he went through with his son. It's like, I vividly remember that, you know, I was just like, that's not really fair to do that to him. You know, he's been beloved for so long and then that happens. And then all of a sudden people just hate him. And it's like, really, you know, like yeah. that was just, that was just like a tragic thing. I think in his life, but and it seemed like it started to fade away towards the end of his you know life yeah, which is a good so. thing. yeah. yeah people, definitely people love jerry at the end yeah you know? and, uh, yeah he was such a, a loyal guy and uh just uh mr red Sox really and just mm-hmm. uh, loved, loved doing the games on tv yeah so i think we're gonna get back a little bit more into your career and and, and sort of you know your story uh 
so what uh who would you say is like the the you know top three most like influential people you know that inspired you to get into writing oh that's a great question um one of them was my mother actually just because she you know at the time you're looking at sports journalism and you're saying that um you know you're saying you know this is a hard must be a hard field to get into a lot of people must want to do this job and she was always just like kind of just like you know just pursue your dreams, you know, do just pursue whatever you want to do. You can do, you can do anything that you set your mind to. So I really have to give her credit um, for really pushing me to the point where I even wrote to you on my note that um, when I got my very first internship at the um, Middlesex News, when I was at Northeastern, uh, it's now called the Metro West Daily, um, they said they couldn't pay me um, so they were basically saying the internship wasn't going to happen because they didn't have a budget for it. Um, my mother, my mother told me to tell them that I would take it for free just to get, just to go get the uh, exposure and stuff. So I'm driving uh, 45 minutes a day there uh, and really paying for it myself with gas money. Cause I'm not getting paid for it, but it, it wound up being, being worth it. Cause that was where I got my first clips. And that was how that kind of led to me getting the job at the globe um, and then another guy was just Peter Gammons, because I grew up just reading him all the time. His Sunday baseball notes were absolutely outstanding. And just kind of um, the the passion that he wrote with was just uh, was just unbelievable. It was uh, it was just off the chart. So he was a big reason that uh, I just became I love reading the sports page. And then I would just say, you know, a lot of the people I worked with um, at the Globe during my time there, whether it was Will McDonough or Dan Shaughnessy or Jackie McMullen, um, Nick Cafardo, just getting to know all these people and seeing um, seeing up close how they worked and just seeing what a cool job it was, but how hard they had to work at it. Um, I would just credit uh, a lot of a lot of people for that. Um, and a lot of those relationships kind of helped get me um, in the business, too. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so what would you say is like the biggest myth or the most common myth about, you know, sports writers or. In yeah. Just, uh, I think some people just think we're sitting around eating hot dogs, like having a great time. And it's just like, kind of like, it's like a fan experience. Um, and it's really not like that at all. You're getting to the ballpark, um, you know, three to four hours early, a lot of times, to talk to players um you're going to the manager's press conference before the game um you're you're sitting there during the game a lot of times writing um whether it's something breaking that just happened or um something from the pregame and it's really you're very busy and you're looking for it's not the fan experience you're looking for great storylines really mm -hmm. good or bad for the team you know what's going to make a good story tonight what can i do that's going to kind of um, show my readers something or take my readers sort of uh, inside the clubhouse. So it's like any job where you have a boss, you have stresses from your boss, you have um, deadlines you have to meet. So it's a great job. But I think that just the general perception that you're just, um, you know, you're just sitting up, like I said, just sitting around and uh, having this great old time, just watching baseball. You spend a lot of time, um, you have one eye on your laptop and one eye on the game because you're, you're mm -hmm. busy. Stuff. So I think that's just the the biggest misconception mis uh, in all that is just that uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not just this fun and games thing. Just, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of hard work involved in it. There's giving up weekends with your family and, 
it can be a you know a pretty grueling uh, travel schedule at times. So I would say that's just, just the biggest myth is that I think people think it's just like. I think people think that it's easier than what it is, where it's like any job where you have, it's got its great points and it's got its, its um, points that aren't as great and it's got its challenges and it's got its stresses. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest misconception is just that people are like, oh, that must be cool to just like watch, watch baseball for a living. Yeah, like there's a lot of pressure on you to get up there, ask the right questions, yeah. know what to write, because you don't want to jeopardize your relationship with these people. Because if you do it's almost like you can't go up to them and ask questions and then you really can't do your job anymore, you know? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So what would you say that you enjoy the most or what's the most rewarding thing about your job? Well, I just love like a big uh, covering a big game, like a big mm-hmm. like Red Sox Yankees game when both are in the middle of the pennant race or just like covering the, the playoffs. Um, you really, appreciate that in a season like this when they don't make the playoffs and you're sort of watching the games on TV, just the um, adrenaline you get from those games. Um, But uh, I just like the rhythms of the job. It's very like, it's very structure oriented. You kind of know what your schedule is every day. You know that um, every February, you know, you're going to get to go to spring training for, you know, over a month and enjoy the, enjoy the nice weather where people are freezing back here. So that's like, Mm -hmm. that's like a great perk to the job right there. Um, but just like the day to day, you don't know what the story is going to be that day, and it's just like a sense of uh, excitement a little bit because you know you just never know what can happen on a baseball field. And I've pretty much um, I've seen it all in my time uh, covering the Red Sox. It's been mm-hmm. I just finished my twenty first year covering covering the Boston Red Sox for MLB.com, and uh, yeah, with the Red Sox, there's always something there's always something fresh and new uh, each year. Each day takes on a kind of a story of its own so just uh i just like the uh the excitement of it and the, there's so much interest in it from fans uh you know the interactions on twitter uh you mm-hmm. know that people are are very interested kind of in, in what you're doing out there um would you say i mean would you say baseball is on the uprise in terms of popularity as of recent compared to other sports it's hard to say because i think like um they're in a transition phase right now where they're trying to um make some rules that will appeal more to the younger generation. Um, so I think the younger generation, um, I think there's a lot of baseball fans out there, but I think they consume the game in a different way than they used to mm. where they're consuming it through highlights and Instagram and Twitter and not just sitting down and watching baseball and taking in every pitch, like fans, like I did when I was a kid. Um, so I think baseball is in a transition right now. Um, and there, you know, this new, new rule changes coming in next year, the pitch clock, um, no more shifting, um, bigger bases to encourage more speed. And so the game's just, they're trying to generate more action, I think for the younger fan and the older fan. Cause I think, um, a lot of people have gotten bored with a lot of the analytics that have sort of taken over the game mm. last few years. So I just, I feel like it's in a transition period, but I do still feel like there's a lot of young fans who do uh, love baseball and it's just a matter of how they're going to consume it um, as time goes on here. I'll tell you what, when it comes to analytics, it seems like with every sport, they've just been consumed with numbers and the feel and like that, that gut, you know, the gut feeling that players get and coaches get, uh, is just sort of been lost, you know, it like the natural talent of just knowing what change to make, who to pinch hit for, who to put in, you know, in a specific situation. It's like, all right, you got to put the lefty in. That's what the stats say. You got to put them in instead of, you know, 
I'm just not feeling it. I, I got to go with this guy. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of sad because I'm a huge believer in that. I think analytics have a time and a place in a game. Um, I think it, it, it could help with like a slight plan, you know, the game plan. Everybody goes, even if you don't have analytics, you have a game plan of what you're going to do, but it's not just baseball. I, I just feel like it's been with other sports as well. And it's sad. I think, you know, cause it just takes a human element out, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. Like I think, yeah, they've gotten too, too crazy with it too much. Um, the shifting was cute at first, you know, they used to always shift David Ortiz when he was at the plate and Joe Madden with the Rays was like the first one to really do that where he had a bunch of guys on the right side, but what year was that? What, what year did you see see the shifts? Yeah, I think it was a 2005. I want to say when, um, when Madden started managing uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, And that was when I, you know, you really, or maybe it was 2006, somewhere around there. And that was when you really first started seeing it um, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, then it just got carried away where it's like every single batter is getting shifted now. Yeah. It's just like the, all these plays that would have been hits, the, the, you're just like, your brain tells you something should be a hit that's being fielded in uh, medium depth right field for a ground out. You know, that's just, yeah. to, me, to me, that's not baseball. And um, yeah, I think Agreed. that shifted too much. Yeah. I, and for those of you that aren't that familiar with the sport of baseball, basically, you know, you have your basic infield, you know, you have two players on each side of second base to the left side and the right side. And a lot of times you might have righties or lefties that tend to pull and it just makes more sense to put more people on the side of the field where they, where they hit the ball more. So the, they will set up shifts, you know, to, to stop the ball from getting into the outfield or getting a base hit or something like that and keep runners off the bases. Um, and it, it takes a lot of hits away from, people that are players that aren't really that great at hitting the other way or hitting around the shift. David Ortiz was definitely one of those people. You almost think that, you know, if they didn't shift that as much, you know, how many more hits would he have had, you know, how better would his on base percentage be, even though it was already incredible, you know, some players it's like, you can't catch a break. Baseball is already difficult enough, you know, three times out of 10. And that's when you're really good. And now you're getting really good line drive hits to right field and then they're gone. You yeah. Know? What people, what people also don't understand is they're like, Oh, if he's shifting, you just, um, just hit the ball the other way. Just hit the ball. It's the not way. that easy. Well, when the players now are throwing up, they're all throwing a hundred miles an hour and they have a hundred mile an hour fastball running in on you to just yeah. be able to flick your wrist and turn that ball into left field. If you're David Ortiz or whoever, mm-hmm it's not that easy at all. It's very hard. Um, yeah. Cause the pitchers are throwing harder than ever. So it's just created like a perfect storm where the game is sort of lacking action where they call it the three true outcomes. Now the walk, the strikeout or the home run mm-hmm. and uh, not enough of the doubles and triples and stolen bases. And a lot of the fun stuff that kind of uh, keeps the game, uh, the great defensive play in the infield and a lot of the great plays that sort of keep the game moving. So that's what they're, we're trying to get back to now. Yeah, it's like ball and play is what you want. Yeah. You know, home runs are great, but it's for a few seconds, you know, and then there's no more runners on base. It's just what like it was before, other than, you know, there's one run difference or something like that. And sure, a huge impact home run is always fun to watch and and, and celebrate. But the pressure really comes when you have runners on base. That's when real baseball starts. Yeah. You know, you, there's so many different things that could go wrong or right from a base runner's perspective, from a fielder's perspective that just don't happen 
you know, you need runners on base, you need more baseballs in play. And that's how you get people to watch, I think. And I, and I definitely think it's not, it's not MLB's fault. It's just sort of how the culture of the sport has changed. For some reason, it's all about pimping home runs and celebrating and not just getting out there and playing. And I definitely think that players should be able to express themselves, but I think it gets to the point where it's just like, listen, dude, tens of thousands of home runs have been hit before. Just hit the ball and run the bases. Like, get over right. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like, you're not the first person to hit a home run. You know, if you're Albert Pujols and you just hit your 700th home run, flip the bat, you know? But if you're, you know, um, Josh Naylor on on the Cleveland Guardians now and you hit a home run and it's like, like, who cares? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. You know, maybe if you're, if you're a Guardians fan, I just got, I keep thinking Indians, Guardians. I know fans. we all want to say that, but gotta, yeah, we yeah. train our brains. I know. I just, I wish they came up like Guardians is kind of like a bland name. I feel like they <laughs> definitely could have came just like with the Washington commanders. It's like, yeah, that's a little weird. Yeah. It's yeah, it's like uh it's not like the Yankees or the Red Sox, right, you know, yeah. even like the Dodgers and the Cardinals. Like the Cardinals is is like generic cuz obviously there's a football team too, but it just it's better than That's like that's like something you've seen a video game like the Guardians yeah. or the Commanders, <laughs> you know. Um but yeah, so let's get into like, you know, sort of some things you've been observing throughout your career, you know, would you say the biggest difference from when you first started, you know, writing about baseball to now is, you know, the culture of the game. Would you say that's the biggest difference? Uh, the culture of the game and just the, also the way the, the, the game is covered, you know, like we used to just like very like uh, newspaper mm -hmm. mentality, you're writing for the next morning's paper and um, information came out a lot slower and now with, with Twitter and uh, it's just like, everything is just like, so immediate. Yeah. 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 And just when I was um, covering the team, I was the only guy covering the team full-time for a website, you know, and everyone else was covering for, there were many newspapers covering the Red Sox. And now it's kind of like, there's way more um, websites covering the Red Sox than, um, than newspapers. So there's a lot more competition for like immediate stories and just like, um, everyone's in a rush to get sort of like a unique um, storyline. There's a lot of competition on the Red Sox beat, but we're all very good friends too. So it's kind of like a friendly sort of competition, but yeah, it's just like everyone's digesting the information instantly now. Um, and it's just, uh, I think I find that's the biggest change from when I first started covering the team in 2002. So obviously you guys, you know, as like a traditional sort of newspaper or, I mean, you work for MLB now, technically, correct? Yeah, yeah, I work yeah. For so, yeah. how have you seen like other people in the media sort of try to, or, or even MLB yourself, try to compete with all these people on YouTube, analyzing the Red Sox, just getting up there on their laptop and recording yeah. themselves? How have you guys tried to compete with these? With yeah, these I mean, I think every, I think everybody has a niche, you know, and I think that we all, would all agree that uh, Bill Simmons was really the one who started the trend of sort of writing on the team and showing an opinion on the team without actually being there and kind of writing it from a fan. So there's a, there's a whole cast of people who do that. Um, and then there's a whole cast of people um, at the ballpark who we have the, we have the advantage of actually being able to talk to the players every day and providing like insider insight based on what we know. So I would say just like, don't try to compete with the guy who's doing the blog from his house and is like on the, 
top of the hill giving like a hot take or whatever like, you know good for him that works for him but um we're there to give a more um you know balanced take from what we actually do know mm-hmm. uh, from talking to the manager from talking to players from gaining all the insight we can um into the team and just just uh doing it that way i mean we're insiders we're on the ground every day we see things we see these players we know their ins and outs we know what they're like we know what the routines are we know what their nagging injuries are that might be kind of preventing them from um, playing as well as they can so we're just kind of sort of acting as a conduit i think um to the fans um and taking them inside the clubhouse and just um basically telling them uh what we know and sort of advancing it with our own um, analytical bent on it and just uh, trying to give as wide ranging a coverage um, as possible and not really worrying about, um, you know, everybody who's blogging or everyone mm-hmm. who's podcasting, because like you said, there's so much of that there. And that was not there when I started, there was maybe one or two people who were doing a podcast at that time. And now it's just like, it's yeah. just, you know, hundred million active podcasts, I think available right now on like spotify and other platforms yeah, it's, yeah, crazy. It's, crazy. it's crazy what that medium has done so it's just i think a lot of people like different things um so we just all try to you know i think there's still people who like to read about the team and find mm-hmm. out you know what's going on yeah so it's more of you know not necessarily trying to compete but just a different way to consume what's going on essentially yeah there's a lot of different ways to do this and i think that fans yeah. like to have um, the traditional and non-traditional ways of, uh, of of covering the team. And it's all a matter of, you know, what that individual fan might, might like. Yeah. So if, if people listening to this live in new England or, you know, the, the Massachusetts, Rhode Island, you know, even like New Hampshire, Connecticut area, you're familiar with WEI. So obviously you've been around and have you ever been on WEI? Like as a, yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. I actually go on there quite a bit. Uh, okay. I do a lot of, um, especially during the pregame show, they have something called the, the clubhouse insider mm-hmm. uh, where they ask, you know, they kind of get the nuts and bolts on what's going on that day with the team. So I've been on that quite a bit. Um, been on some of their talk shows as a guest um, back in the day. And yeah, so I bounce around on different, um, different radio outlets doing uh, doing guest appearances even get to go on mlb network um here and there to kind of talk talk about the red sox so uh, that's the other thing there's a lot more multimedia component to the job uh now than than when i first yeah. started so mlb network's a really interesting you know perspective because it's it's coming right from you know it's coming right from mlb you know it's not wei covering MLB it's it's not the Boston Globe it's MLB covering MLB so did MLB network it was like it was created in like 2009 right something like that yeah okay I I don't know why I knew that but I did (laughs) but um it it's really interesting channel so if you want to you know kind of expand and talk about MLB network and because you were you were there before it and now you're there currently you know has, has MLB changed at all you know due to it um, I just think that it's created an opportunity for fans to just really um, soak in the game uh, mm-hmm. all day. Uh, some people have this on. I mean, I'm surprised sometimes when I hear how many people watch MLB Network. A lot of people, oh yeah, and kids too. That's the thing. The younger generation is watching. They might not be watching the games as much, mm-hmm. but they're watching MLB Network. So say, oh, I saw this on MLB Network. I heard. So it's this kind of thing. When you're around the house doing something, you can flip it on and hear what what the people are saying and they have a really uh wide variety of guests they have on there a lot of former players 
And mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's been a great outlet for 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 baseball, where I think baseball used to be consumed a lot on ESPN, um, and ESPN did a ton of baseball stuff. They've scaled back on baseball, um, especially since the advent of MLB Network. So I think that that's an opportunity for fans to really kind of keep up on the game and they do all kinds of fun things. They have top 10 lists for this and top 10 this, and um, they do all the MVP shows and the, you know, when they give out those awards, they have full length shows on MLB network to, to, uh, to talk about that. So I just think that MLB network has really expanded um, and given people a lot more baseball who like have a need for, for more baseball. So I think it, it has helped uh, the younger fan. Yeah. Yeah. I, during high school, I would like flip it on every morning and get, you know, it's an hour now, which is, um, is it an hour? No, it's a half an hour now. I think quick pitch it's called. Yeah. And they would just show every game. I think it used to be an hour and now it's a half an hour. Yeah. 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 The attention span, we're playing to attention span of the younger fan. So the more younger fans that we can get involved with baseball, um, the better the game is going to be off. Uh, the better the game is going to be. And so obviously being around the Red Sox for 20 you know years now um was there any like trades or acquisitions you know obviously there's always things that are being rumored was there anything that happened and you're like oh, whoa I did not see that coming you know like trades or or acquisitions or anything like that yeah I, I would say that the no more trade um to the Cubs at the 20 2004 deadline was just kind of insane like Mm-hmm. You had heard that maybe Nomar would be traded, but uh, you just still weren't going to believe it until it actually happened because he was such an icon for people who were around the city in the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, he was, um, people were building him up to be as the next um, Ted Williams. So for, um, you know, and then kind of injury set in and then he got a little, Nomar got a little disenchanted with Boston when they tried to trade for Alex Rodriguez one winter uh, before the 2000 between the 2003 and four seasons. Cause that would basically, if they had gotten Alex Rodriguez, that would basically have put Nomar out of Boston. They were, they were going to trade him to Texas mm-hmm. or they were going to trade him to the white Sox along with John Lester. And they were going to get Maglio or Donas. So this only reason this didn't happen is because the, the players association wouldn't approve um, a rod taking a cut. He a rod was willing to reduce his contract to come to the Red Sox and the players association basically wouldn't allow that. Uh, because the Red Sox could only do this trade if it was like he was just making by far the biggest salary in the game at the time. Mm-hmm. He had that big deal with Texas, but the Red Sox said they can only do it if he just cut a little bit off the salary. It wasn't a huge amount, and the Players Association said uh, said no. So, um, but just seeing Nomar traded, um, that was we were like in Minnesota at the time, and it was the day of the tra- trade deadline. They actually asked the media to leave the clubhouse because they, I think they know they wanted to. Terry Francona wanted to break the news to know more that he had been traded. So then uh, he came out after that and, uh, you know, basically, you know, all dressed, ready to leave and fly to go meet the Cubs. And he stopped and talked to us for a little bit. It was pretty emotional about it, but that one was, that one was wild. Um, especially because they, one of the guys they traded for was Doug Minkiewicz and they were playing the twins in Minnesota at the time. So Minkiewicz just walked down the hall uh, with his, uh, with his twins gear. and was like, okay, yep. I'm on the- Sox now and he played that night uh for the Red Sox and I remember he got a big standing ovation in uh Minnesota but uh so that was uh you know that was one of the, my craziest days uh on the Sox beat was the day that uh, Omar Garcia Parra was tra- I remember Johnny Damon saying that uh you know we traded away the franchise 
And um, at the time they got um, Orlando Cabrera and Doug McCavich and Dave Roberts were the three players they got back. None of them were having spectacular seasons. It was like, oh my God, we just traded no more Garcia Parra for three 250 hitters. How's this going to mm. work out? And, you know, the Red Sox won the World Series that year because, like, everything just changed after that trade for whatever reason. It was a the trade wound up being a stroke of yep. genius for uh, Theo Epstein. But that was the, the craziest trade I ever saw. Do you, so what was his main reasoning behind trading Noma, or, or as I say, Noma? Yeah, Noma. Um, there are a couple reasons. The first was that I think Noma really did get um, disenchanted with the Red Sox because he was like the face of that team. And then um, all of a sudden when new ownership came in and Theo Epstein uh, was leading the front office, they weren't as enamored with him as the previous ownership. And some of his defensive metrics showed that maybe he was starting to slip on defense a little bit. And he was also more injury prone at the time. So um, Theo Epstein said at the time that our, the fatal the fatal flaw of our team is our defense in 2004. So by trading Nomar, they got Orlando Cabrera, who was an excellent shortstop. They got Doug McCabich, who was an excellent first baseman. And then they made a separate trade where they got um, Dave Roberts, who uh, was very fast. And the Red Sox didn't have a lot of fast runners. And he had a stolen base uh, that October that might be the biggest yep. in the history of, of baseball. So just the trade wound up, uh, people didn't necessarily totally understand it. I, I think a lot of the fans were fine with trading no more because they understood the situation of, um, you know, that the dynamic just wasn't as good between no more and the Red Sox at the time. But I think people on paper were like, ah, oh, that's all we got for no more Garcia Parra. So I think people were, were skeptical and they went like 500. Mm-hmm. They went like 500 or something the first five games, the first 10 games after the trade. And after that, they just took off and became like the best team in the world uh, yeah. for, the rest, for the rest of the season. So it became uh, a fascinating trade, really. And the funny thing is that Cabrera, Minkiewicz, and Dave Roberts were all gone from the Red Sox uh, by mm-hmm. the end of the 2004 season. But uh, while these three guys were there in the span of three months, they uh, kind of helped Boston win its first World Series since uh, in 86 years. So let's let's. Were you on the field or at, at you were at Fenway in two thousand four uh, when the Red Sox yeah. were down three games to none to the Yankees? Yeah, yeah, oh. that was crazy. That was the so. Crazy I want if you could talk about that a little bit. But first, I want to set the tone for people, you know, because I get listeners of all, you know, backgrounds, and some of them aren't really into baseball. But this is huge. So, for those of that for those of you that don't know, Red Sox won hadn't won a World Series since what was it nineteen nineteen. 1918, yeah, that was 1918, cool. Curse of the Bambino, Babe Ruth gets traded to the Yankees, and apparently he cursed the Red Sox, and they went 86 years without winning a World Series all the way up to 2004, and in 2004, it seemed like it was going to be another year where they weren't going to win because they got to, I believe it was a CS with the Yankees, down three games to none. It's a best of seven series, just like many other sports playoffs. And this was uh this was a series to get into the World Series, and they had just lost a game nineteen to eight. Yeah, game three. Yeah. So now that I've talked about it a little bit, let's if you could talk about you know the atmosphere. What was what was it like in two thousand and four on on that day? Yeah, it was um, just kind of like wow, I can't believe this. Uh, everybody from players to media to fans, it was just like this Red Sox team in two thousand and four looked like the one that was finally built to the to beat the Yankees. They got Kurt Schilling in the offseason. They got uh, Keith Folk to be the closer. They got these three guys we just talked about at the trade deadline, and they really had a swagger against the Yankees. And just for them to, you know, the, the reason the whole series started so badly was because 
uh, Kurt Schilling had uh, really injured his ankle, um, beating the Angels in the first round, but he uh, like tore a tendon in his ankle, so he tried to pitch through that in game one, and just uh, the Yankees squashed him. So I think that was a psychological blow to the Red Sox. And then they lost a tight game with Pedro pitching in game two. And then uh, game three in Boston, uh, Bronson Arroyo pitched and just didn't have it. And uh, yeah, the Yankees beat them 19 to eight. And you're just like, okay, now it's just like, can they save face and not get swept? Because this is just like, this is just terrible. That uh, After the, in 03, they, if you remember, they came five outs from getting to the World Series. And that mm-hmm. was when Grady Little um, left Pedro in too long. The stats all documented the Pedro would fade after 105 pitches in 2003 and Grady for some reason uh, left him in and he just uh, he blew a, a three-run lead so that was a crushing loss because they thought they were going to the World Series in 2003 and just to come back again in 2004 and look like you were going to lose again it was just like the Red Sox are never going to beat the Yankees it just became like so that was uh, I think that like I said everyone's just like oh can they save face and win one game but Kevin Millar the clips are famous they're all over youtube and the internet now where he was just like saying don't let us win tonight because if we win mm-hmm. tonight's game then we have pedro pitching game five showing pitching game six anyone can win game seven and millar turned out to be a prophet because um they found this way to win game four with Derek low pitching and uh Derek had been taken out of the starting rotation because he was pitching so bad um late in that 2004 season but he found a way to keep them in the game uh, the bullpen found a way to keep them in the game. They're still down by a run with Mariano Rivera, the best pitcher of all time, pitching in the ninth. And Millar gets this walk, and Roberts pinch runs for him and steals second. And then uh, Bill Miller, the underrated hero of game four, drives him in with a single. Game tied up. Fenway is just gone crazy at this point. You would not know the Red Sox were down three games to none. Mm-hmm. And, you know, three innings later, Poppy hits the walk-off homer and the play. I, it's just like the entire series shifted on this one game, and you could feel the momentum shift. And it's kind of crazy because usually in a three games to, to none thing, if the team wins game four, they're like, okay, they were going to win a game. In this case, you could kind of feel like because the Yankees had this. The Yankees had them swept, and they couldn't close it. And it was the same thing the next game. In game five, the Yankees were up four to two in the eighth. And um, Poppy again hit a huge home run to get them within a run. And then they tied it up. Uh, Rivera gave up a game-tying sack to Jason Veritek. And this time they went in – the game before was 12 innings. This time they went in 14 innings when Ortiz again uh, bloops a single in the center. And Fenway is just going absolutely bananas. And they traveled to New York. And the Yankees just – the Yankees – so the Red Sox going to New York was great. For the Yankees, it was a drag. They're like, why is this series still going? So I remember I could feel it in the atmosphere at Yankee Stadium that, you know, their their fans were were very shaken by the fact that the series wasn't over. And then you remember the whole thing with Kurt Schilling pitched with the bloody sock mm-hmm. in game six, and nobody knew what he was going to do. Uh, he went out and pitched seven innings against the Yankees and gave up one run. And that just changed that. When they won game six, um, you know, they – it still came down to the last pitch. I remember Keith Folk struck out Tony Clark on like an 88 mile an hour fastball or something. He was just on fumes. <laughs> Folk threw a hundred pitches in three days. Oh. Um, yeah. And he was just on fume, but he found a way to get uh, Tony Clark. And then just for the Red Sox to be going to game seven at that point, you're like, all right, now they have the chance to avenge what happened last year. Now they're back uh, in game seven. And that was just uh, crazy. And then they just killed him in game seven. Johnny Damon went off. Grand like, slam. Hit a grand slam in the uh, second inning, and then he hit a, a three-run homer in the third or fourth inning, and 
it was just a route and he just couldn't believe it because it's still it's the only team that's ever come back from 3-0 uh in baseball uh nobody's in sports done. history and hockey right? it's happened in hockey, it's happened. hockey okay yeah but uh no nobody's done it before that uh nobody's done it after that and it's still just this this unbelievable thing and that was the team to do it because that team of all the team like teams i covered that team just had so much character and so much swagger they were loose mm-hmm. all the time whether they were on a winning streak or a losing streak and that was the mentality you needed at that time to break that curse in Boston. And then what I found, Max, is that after they won in 04, winning became a little contagious for the Red Sox, where they went from this franchise that felt like they were going to lose when the situations got tight to all of a sudden they felt like they were going to win. And the fans kind of got behind that, where they the fans used to have kind of like a fatalist mentality. And they really got behind it. And, uh, you know, they... they <laughs> And now, uh, you know, they won those four World Series in 15 years. So it's it's unbelievable just the turnaround, how 2004 kind of changed the whole mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, amazing. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of spoiled as a Red Sox fan now, you know, because the, you know, born in 2001. So I, all I've known is World Series, you know, so it, I'm very spoiled. <laughs> so I'm very yeah. lucky to be alive now. Cause you know, it's just crazy. The, the baseball for me is an amazing sport and I, and I love it so much. Um, but yeah, that's crazy. I couldn't imagine what it was like. And, you know, so obviously from 2003 on to 2004, the Red Sox got a different manager in yeah. Terry Francona. So I, did you have a relationship with him at all? Uh, you mean before he got to Boston? Yeah. Like just in general, yeah. like, yeah. Did you yeah. know him? Yeah. Great relationship. Yeah. Um, I knew Terry just a little bit from uh, my CBS Sportsline days where I would go to a Phillies game every now and then when he was managing them, but I just knew him really offhand, but uh, we just clicked right away when he got to, when he got to Boston. Um, Yeah. I really enjoyed the interaction with him. Just a great guy. He trusts you. There's nobody more fun to talk to than than Terry Francona. He just has a great sense of perspective on, on baseball and just has a perfect mentality with the players. Very smart about the game. Um, just can't say enough about Terry Francona. Absolutely one of my favorite people that I've come across with uh, in baseball. Just an awesome guy, a great manager. I mean, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. And uh, just a regular guy. I think that's why Boston fans always love Tito. Mm-hmm. Um, is because uh, he just comes across as a regular guy and um, just very down to earth. Uh, I love the way he handles his team. And love the way he handles the media. So yeah, he's he was definitely one of my favorites. But yeah, he made a big difference in two thousand four. Um, he didn't have success with his first managing job in Philadelphia, and he didn't have much of a team around him except for Kurt Schilling. And normally that might might make someone tight when they come to a place like Boston. Um, but I think he just get used to it throughout the year, and he just said, "I'm going to do this my way, and I'm going to you know I'm going to be good to the players. I'm going to get along with the players, and I'm going to show trust in them." And um, I'm going to think, uh, I'm going to really balance my thinking. I'm not going to panic when I make in-game decisions. And he was just the first, you know, he was the first manager in a long time, I think, who really didn't get affected by the Boston media and kind of what they thought. And he was just kind of his own guy. And I think that enabled him to have a great career, not only with the, the Red Sox, but uh, we've seen what he's done with Cleveland since, since he left Boston. Yeah. Were you surprised when they let him go in 2010? I think it was his last it was year. After the, it was after the 2011 season. 2011, um, yeah. Yeah, they had this whole uh, collapse. It was a historic collapse where they were ahead mm. 
nine games in September in the wild card race, and no team in history had ever blown a nine-game lead in September before. Um, so to tell you the truth, yeah, I was surprised. It was kind of like um, the Nomar thing. It's like, even though you might hear rumors about it, it's still shocking when it happens because uh, Terry, you know, had, Terry had been the most successful manager probably in Red Sox history. But there was all, I don't know if, uh, but if you remember all the stories about the, you know, stories came out in the days after the the collapse in Baltimore about how players were, um, the starting pitchers were drinking beer and eating fried chicken during the during the games. Um, so the whole culture that the the whole culture of the 2011 team came into question because the players kind of stopped prioritizing winning and were just kind of like goofing around during games and not uh, being as committed to winning as they were before that. So I think Terry was collateral damage to that. And they were just like, all right, if the players are doing this, um, maybe they need a new voice. Um, I didn't agree with it at the time. Bobby Valentine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bobby <laughs> Valentine, that was just, uh, I mean, John Farrell was the guy they wanted all along to get to replace. Yeah. Uh, they always thought it, even when Tito was there and Tito and Farrell were together, they were thinking, you know, maybe when Tito steps down, I don't think they had any idea Tito would manage as long as he has, but I think the thinking was always that John Farrell would be the next in line, but then he left to go to Toronto and he was still under contract. And it was just one year later, it was just too soon for, for Farrell to be able to leave Toronto. So they hired Bobby Valentine and I knew Bobby in New York and I actually thought he did a good job in New York. Um, he got the most out of that team. He got them to the world series, but he just wasn't the right fit uh, for the Red Sox in 2012. He had been out of the game in the major leagues for 10 years and a lot had changed and it just wasn't the game. Bobby Valentine had left in 2002, the one he came back to in 2012 and he just, he didn't adapt. The players didn't really give him a chance. It was just a terrible mix. And then uh, when Farrell came in in 2013, that was a much better mix and they won that crazy uh world series that year but mm-hmm. yeah i think it's sad that terry francona didn't finish his career in boston he he loved it here but boston's a hard place to manage i mean managing the manager of the red sox is one of the hardest jobs out there and i think that you know he just got burnt out so i think maybe in a way that the move to cleveland um actually uh proved to be better for him uh mentally physically even though he has had a lot of physical ailments yeah. uh, in cleveland but i think that that's uh, been a nice way for him to finish his career whenever he finishes it is being in a market like Cleveland where there's not as much pressure where the ownership um, has really believed in him uh, the front office and everything and he has a, a great situation now great yeah so a couple more questions and we'll start to wrap up so what would you say your favorite moment in sports would be my favorite moment in sports yeah like ever ever doesn't have to be baseball it could be anything yeah, I mean, I would, I would say um, the Patriots beating the Rams in the in the Super Bowl in two thousand one because um, you know nobody gave them a chance. I mean, they the Patriots yep. have been a, a losing organization all the time, and just I just remember the euphoria as a sports fan, not somebody who's covering it, but just a sports fan um, covering that. Now, if I wasn't covering the Red Sox at the time, I would say that two thousand four ALCS would have been my top moment ever but when you're covering that's different because you're just you have to be objective so you're just kind of following the storyline you're not getting too up and you're not getting too down but uh that patriots thing in 2001 i was able to just sort of really i'm not covering it as a writer i'm just a patriots fan um so and just the magnitude of that upset so that to me was the was the um craziest thing i ever saw as a sports fan but covering sports yeah definitely the the Red Sox Yankees 2004 ALCS because we might never see something like that again. 
um, seeing them come back from 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 three games to none. And also, um, great moment that David Ortiz grand slam against the Tigers in 2013. Oh. Yes. I mean, the Dave O'Brien's call on that gives me yeah, chills. Yeah, David, David Ortiz, David Ortiz. Oh my God. And Joe Buck was just horrible, like he always is. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment on that one. But, uh, yeah, as far as, you know, as far as Big Poppy, you know, they're down five to one. Oh. Before go in the game. They're about to go down. I remember down that. They're about to lose two straight games in Boston and then have to face Justin Berlander in game three, down two games to none. And Poppy hits this grand slam that just sends Tory Hunter sprawling into the bullpen. It sends this bullpen cop putting his arms up like this, like in a victory sign. And it was just a crazy, uh, iconic moment, probably the signature moment of David's career. And uh, that, to me, was an all-time uh an all-time moment to cover. Gives me chills just remembering it. Yeah, just... it was just phenomenal. Yeah, you could never homered off Benoit in his career. Yeah, yeah, McCarver <laughs> said it right before the pitch. Yeah, and uh, and then yeah, yeah oh, craziness. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was that was but, awesome. But yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this. I've had just absolute blast talking to you for the yeah, past so- hour. Um, but yeah, so the last question I finish off every podcast with is what sort of advice would you leave for the listener? It could be to an aspiring, uh, sports writer. It could be, you know, business, you know, life, anything that you want it to be, you know, what sort of advice would you leave? I would say, um, make as many connections as you can. Um, I think that is something that's applicable in all industries is just meet people in the field, find a way to meet people who are in the field. And you'll find a lot of people you can actually reach out to and they'll be helpful. And just the more people you know, um, the better chance you have of sort of advancing yourself, especially in in, uh, in sports journalism. So I think it's really important to, to network and just, um, you know, just do as much networking as you can. I think that really helped me a lot was just all the people at a young age that I got to know and they really helped me advance my career. So uh, that's what I would say is just, uh, you know, networking is key, just keeping your eyes open and just always being willing to work hard. Like if you go into sports journalism thinking, you know, I don't want to work weekends. I don't want, I want to work like a nine to five job. That's not going to be the job for you. So if you want to be a sports journalist, just be ready to go all in, pay your dues uh, because you're going to do it for a while and just have fun with it. I mean, if you can get a job in sports journalism, it's hard. It's a competitive field, but it's a great job. It's a great field to work in. So just embrace it and appreciate it and just, um, you know, do everything you can to, to be good at it. Great. Well, thank you again for coming on. Been a great conversation. Yeah. And um, thank you all for tuning into the knowledge is power podcast, and I will catch you in the next one.